there. That was a blessing, wasn't it? I appreciate them singing for us tonight. How many of you brought your Bible, will you? Uh, will you hold up the Word of God for just a moment? And I want to ask you to join me over in the Gospel of Luke tonight, chapter 22. That song tonight, nobody else could do what he's done for me, goes right along with our thought for this evening, for our message, and then, of course, as we move into our communion service. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we have communion twice a year. We always do it on the Sunday before Easter, uh, the last week, the so-called Passion Week of Christ. We do it then. That kind of puts a perspective on everything that went on that week. So we do it then, and then we always do it on the Sunday night before Thanksgiving because that's a great time to uh, just be reminded of uh, what the Lord has done for us. And uh, nobody else could take the burden from me. Nobody else could do what he's done for me. It took his blood, and we're going to talk about here, that here in our text tonight. Luke chapter 22, and if you'll locate that in the Bible, and uh, I want to read uh, just two or three verses here. Then I want to ask you to leave your Bibles open and follow me along tonight. Look at Luke chapter 2, uh, 1,107 in your old Schofield Bible. Look at verse number 13. The Bible said, And they went, speaking of the disciples of the Lord, and they went and found as he said unto them. Now, prior to this, the Lord has sent those disciples over to a particular place to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, get a room so that the, uh, the disciples and the Lord Jesus can celebrate the Passover. So the Bible said in verse 13, they went and found as he said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And then if you'll drop down into verse number, uh, verse number 19, we read this. And he took bread and gave thanks, and break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this do, in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, I want to ask you to leave your Bibles open here for just a minute, and I want to kind of give you just a little bit of a different spin on this thought tonight as we move toward our time of communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good singing tonight by our choir and then by the group tonight for the good reminder. And I pray now the Word of God would do its part of speaking to our hearts tonight. Lord, we want to give place and preeminence to the Bible, the Word of God. We so need the Bible in these days. Thank you for a church that still believes in giving the Bible preeminence in the service. I pray you'd bless your Word. Help us tonight. Remind us, dear Lord, in this service and help us to be thankful for the great salvation that we have experienced. And if there's anybody here that hasn't experienced that salvation, I pray this will be the night they open their heart to Jesus and receive the sacrifice, the payment that has been made. Bless us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the giving, the giving of a last meal to a condemned prisoner dates back to the country of France all the way back to the 16th century. A person who had been condemned to die was given his, or as the case may be, her choice of what he or she would eat before execution. And that remains pretty much a tradition that is basically followed to this day. In every state in the United States where the death penalty has not been abolished, when a person is convicted of a capital crime and is sentenced to death and all the appeals have been exhausted, that person, before they're put to death, will receive what is known as the last meal. There are usually some tight restrictions placed upon this last meal varying from state to state. 
For instance, in the state of Florida, the last meal of a condemned prisoner cannot exceed $40. In the state of Oklahoma, the meal cannot exceed $15. In the state of Louisiana, the warden usually joins the condemned person, prisoner, for their last meal. In September of 2011, the state of Texas abolished all uh, special last meal requests after a condemned prisoner by the name of Lawrence Russell Brewer requested a huge meal for his last meal and then did not eat one bite because he said he was not hungry. By the way, I found out, listen to this, this is what he ordered as his last meal. He requested two chicken fried steaks with gravy and sliced onions, a triple patty bacon cheeseburger with fixings on the side, a cheese omelet with ground beef, tomatoes, onions, and bell peppers and jalapenos. You won't eat that right before you die because you are going to die after you eat that. A bowl of fried okra with ketchup. I get that. A pound of barbecued meat with half a loaf of white bread, three fully loaded fajitas, a pizza topped with pepperoni, ham, beef, bacon, and sausage, a pint of bluebell ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge topped with crushed peanuts, and three root beers, and then he didn't eat a bite of it. And Texas said, that is enough. In the state of North Carolina, there are currently, as of this day, currently 143 people who are on death row, including in that 143 people, three different women. One woman, you may remember, her name is Blanche Taylor Moore. She's the black widow, accused of killing all of her husbands. And she has been on death row for more than 30 years. But I could not find any guidelines the state has imposed, our state has imposed regarding the last meal of a condemned prisoner. The last person in the state of North Carolina who was put to death was back on August the 18th of 2006. Now, if you're wondering why I'm talking so much about a last meal, it's because that's what our text is about tonight. Our text is about the last meal of our Savior before he was crucified. Now, I personally believe that the whole notion of giving a condemned prisoner a last meal dates back not to France in the 16th century. I think it dates all the way back to the Lord Jesus. And here is what I want to do tonight. I want to talk about the last meal of our Savior before we observe communion, but I want to consider it like this. The last meal of the Savior was the first Thanksgiving meal. Now, I think we all know, according to history, in 1621, the pilgrims, and I hope I'm saying this right, along with the Wampampanoag Indians, sat down and celebrated what we would call the first Thanksgiving meal. By the way, their first meal, that first meal consisted of waterfowl and venison and ham and lobster and berries and fruit and pumpkins and squash. It was a big meal. But I, I personally believe that the whole notion of a Thanksgiving meal can date back to the last meal that our Savior had while he was here upon this earth. Now, of course, this coming Thursday, you and I are going to sit down and we're going to have and enjoy a big meal. And the primary meal of that, uh, primary purpose of the meal that you and I are going to celebrate this coming Thursday will be, though we don't need it, but it'll be for our bodies. It'll nourish our bodies that we may in turn use our bodies to glorify God and to do what God has called us to do. 
But the whole purpose of this meal that we're talking about tonight was not for the body. The whole purpose of this meal was for the memory. That's right. The whole reason that the Lord Jesus inaugurated and instituted this meal that we're going to commemorate right after service tonight, the whole purpose behind that was not for the nourishment of the body, but it was for a prompting of our memories. You see, God knows. God knows that we all have a tendency to forget. And God understands that as we get older, that our forgetfulness increases with age. So God, in His supreme wisdom, established the meal. God instituted the meal for the whole purpose of prompting our memories. Maybe we'd say it like this, of jogging our memories to never forget what Jesus has done for us because nobody could ever do what Jesus did for us. That's right. And so tonight, for just a few minutes, before we move into our communion service, I want to talk about this meal for just a moment, the first Thanksgiving meal. Boy, we ought to give thanks for this meal that we're about to partake of for what it means to us tonight. So could I tonight briefly look in our text, can I mention three things about this first Thanksgiving meal? By, uh, first of all, if you look back up at verse number 13, let me say this. The first Thanksgiving meal, number one, speaks of the love God reveals. It speaks of the love that God reveals. You see, in reality, this whole meal that, that we read about in this text tonight was about one thing. And the whole meal was about the love that God has toward humanity. Now, the setting to this meal that we're about to partake of here in just a moment is, as we read in our text, the whole setting behind it was the meal of something called the Passover. The Passover. Now, there may be some people in here, you're new to church, or maybe you haven't been in church in a while, or maybe you've been saved, but you've never read the Bible that much, and there may be some people sitting here tonight who has no idea what the Passover is. So if I may, let me kind of put that in perspective for you for just a moment. This coming Thursday, as Americans, we know that we're going to sit down around this table and we're going to gather with our friends and with our families for what will be, for us, the biggest meal of the year. And there are two reasons why we're going to sit down Thursday with our family. Number one is to celebrate a meal. I mean, man, my wife has already got the menu planned out, and we're having everything from turkey to dressing all the way through uh, to, the, to, the, to the desserts that will come afterward. And we're having this great meal, so we'll celebrate a meal. But the number two reason is so that we might remember the goodness of God on our nation and on our lives. So every year, the fourth Thursday of November, we set aside that day to gather with family, to gather with friends, to just celebrate a meal and to think about how good God has been to us personally and how good God has been to us collectively as a nation. Well, what that is to us, the Passover was to the nation of Israel. You see, every year, the same time every year, they gathered around the table with their family and their friends to celebrate the goodness of God on their nation. You see, if you think back about the Old Testament history, Israel as a nation was formally in bondage. Seventy people left the land of Canaan, moved down into the land of Egypt. They began to populate. They began to populate so fast that the Egyptians became afraid 
of the Israelites, and they placed them in bondage. This bondage, this captivity, would last for a period of 400 years. They were treated harshly and cruelly by the empire of Egypt. And, of course, God's people, we know the story. They began to cry, cry out to God and to beg God to do something about the bondage, the captivity and th that they were in. And God, in answer to the prayers of the people of God, sent them a deliverer by the name of Moses. However, we know Moses went to Pharaoh. He, he gave Pharaoh God's command. God said, let my people go. But the government, the empire of Egypt, refused to allow Israel to leave. God, then through a series of what we would call natural disasters, I'd rather call them supernatural disasters, but God began to move. God began to move those Egyptians to the point that they were going to be willing to allow Israel to leave the land of Egypt. Their crops were destroyed. Their livestock was destroyed. Their natural resources was destroyed. And the entire economy lay in ruins. And the whole empire of Egypt, formerly the most powerful, influential, formidable nation on the entire world at that time, was literally brought to its knees by the power of God. God. By the way, God still has that power tonight. However, they still refused to allow Israel to leave. God then said he would bring upon them one final plague. It was the plague of death, the judgment of death upon the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. What would happen is this. God would allow death to begin to move through the land of Egypt. And in every household in the land of Egypt, the firstborn child would die. Now, if I were living in the land of Egypt in those days, my firstborn child is Hannah. And if I had not applied the blood, my firstborn child in the land of Egypt, on the night during the judgment of death, my firstborn child would have died. What God was going to do to the Egyptians, God was making no distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. However, God made provision for His people. God told His people through Moses to put a lamb up. Pin it up for three days. Make sure it doesn't have any spot nor any blemish because that lamb was going to represent uh, God's future lamb, the Lord Jesus. They were to pin that lamb up for three days. And then on the third day, they were to kill that lamb. They were to drain the basin of the, uh, the blood of that lamb out into a basin. And they were to take a piece of hyssop, which was a plant, something like we would use a, a paintbrush. And they were to take that hyssop and dip it in that basin of blood and smear it over the door lintels of their home. And when the judgment of death began to pass through the land of Egypt, wherever the blood had been applied to the door lintels of that home, death would pass over that home and they would be spared the judgment of God. However, those homes where the blood was not applied, the firstborn died. There was not a home in all the land of Egypt that wasn't affected by the judgment of death. Even the household of Pharaoh itself was affected by the judgment of death. And it was during that night that Pharaoh summoned for Moses in the midnight hour and told Moses to get his people to gather up their belongings and to leave the land of Egypt. And now, fast forward to the days of the Lord Jesus, hundreds of, of years later, 
that very night that we've read about in our text, they were still celebrating what God had done hundreds of years before. Every Passover, the people of Israel, once again, would still bring a lamb to the temple. They would present it to the priest, and that priest then would bring a knife across the throat of that little innocent lamb, and the blood would begin to flow freely. I read this week, in fact, that every Passover, there were 600 priests on top of the Temple Mount that were killing an average of four lambs per minute for two solid hours, making a total of over 250,000 lambs that were killed every Passover. There was so much blood that was shed on top of the Temple Mount, they said that it ran down the Temple Mount and it flowed into the little stream, the little brook of Kidron. And for a solid week after Passover, the water in the brook of the, brook of the Kidron would be nothing more than a bloody stream for a week at a time. And what was the meaning of all this? Passover was nothing more than a reminder to the people of God of the incredible love that He has toward them. The only reason, the reason, and the only reason that God spared them of the judgment of death was not because of their goodness, but it was because of His grace. Every lamb that was slaughtered, every sacrifice that was made, every drop of blood that was shed was nothing more than a reminder to those Israelites that there was a God in heaven that loved them incredibly. God loved them in spite of who and what they may have done. And I want to remind everybody in this room tonight as we consider this meal that we're about to partake of, I just want to say that what we're about to do is nothing more than a reminder of the incredible love that God has for people just like you and just like me. Can I stop and say that if you're saved tonight, you're not saved because of your goodness. You're saved because there was a God in heaven that loved you so much that He gave His Son as a spotless, perfect Lamb to die on Calvary for your sins. If you're saved tonight, you're saved because of the love of God. And if you sit here in this room and you're unsaved, may I just remind you the whole reason you're still alive today and not already in hell is simply because there's a God that loves you tonight. Yes, sir. This meal, this Thanksgiving meal that we're about to partake of is a reminder of the love that God revealed. God loves you tonight. I remember when I was growing up, you know, when you liked a little old girl or something, he picked a flower out in the yard, a little daisy or whatever it was, and you started on the pedestal, you know, the petals of that little flower. You'd go through that little, that, that flower, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, and she loves me not. And hopefully you always wind it up, wound up on the one where she loves you. Now, I have come down to the point that I've had to rig it once in a while to make it turn out like I wanted to make it turn out. But can I tell you something tonight? You don't have to rig the love of God, friend. Hey, I just want to tell you that in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, in spite of what you have or you don't have, there's a God in heaven that loves you tonight. And this meal reminds us of the love that God has revealed. The only thing that you have to do for God to love you is just show up. For God so loved the world. This meal, this Thanksgiving meal, speaks of the love that God reveals. But can I say number two tonight, look at our text. This, this Thanksgiving meal 
that we're about to partake of not only reveals the love that, uh, the, the love that God reveals, but it also re, uh, speaks to us about the life that Jesus resigned, the life that he gave. You see, the whole, this whole meal is nothing more than about the death that Jesus was getting ready to die in our text, or in this day, has already died. Let me tell you what would have happened this night. If we would have been there, if we'd have been a disciple, a follower of Jesus back in those days, here's, here's kind of the sequence of what would have happened that night. I'll use Peter and John. At around, uh, I don't know, maybe 3 o'clock that afternoon, Peter and John would have taken a lamb to the temple, 3 o'clock. The they would have presented it to the priest, and the priest would have brought the knife across the little throat of that little lamb, and the blood would have flowed freely. That lamb is then given back to Peter and John, and they'll take that lamb, the meat of that lamb, and they'll return to the upper room where that meat of that little lamb that's given his life is now going to be roasted. It's going to be roasted with bitter herbs because those bitter herbs serve as a reminder of the bitter bondage that Israel was in down in the land of Egypt. And sometime around 6 o'clock that afternoon, the disciples, along with the Lord Jesus, would sit down and they would eat the, the, the meat of that lamb that had been sacrificed. They would probably sing some psalms. Basically, they sang Psalms 133, 134, and 135. And the meal would have then been over. However, this night, Jesus did something a little bit different. Because after they had partaken of the Passover, the Bible said that Jesus took some bread. And the Bible said that Jesus took a cup. Now, the bread and the cup were very common, everyday, ordinary items. But God was about to take these very common, everyday, ordinary items and use them as everlasting symbols of what Jesus was about to do. So we read in our text here in verse number 19 that after they'd eaten the Passover and, and the meal was over, Jesus said, to, in essence, now tonight we're going to do something a little bit different because I'm about to institute a meal for my people that's going to replace the meal of the Passover. Now what we're doing here tonight, we're not celebrating a Passover meal. This is not the church doesn't celebrate the Passover. The church celebrates the Lord's Supper. And this is the supper, the meal that God has specifically designed for His church, for His believers during the age of grace. Now this meal someday is going to be replaced by another meal called the marriage supper of the Lamb. But until we reach that meal, we are to partake of this meal, not for our bodies, but for our memories. Now if you look at verse 19, he speaks about the bread. Look at verse 19. The Bible said, and he took bread. And he gave thanks. By the way, what a thanksgiving meal. The Lord took that piece of bread, and before anything else was done, he gave thanks for that piece of bread. Talk about a thanksgiving meal. You say, preacher, my life, things are so bad in my life right now, I just don't even think I can give thanks. Well, I'll tell you something. Jesus was about to die an excruciating death on the cross of Calvary, and he took a piece of bread, but before he did anything with that bread, he stopped and he thanked God for the piece of bread. Yes, sir, that bread, that bread represents the body of Jesus that was about to be shattered. 
The Bible said in verse 19, he gave thanks for it. Then he took that piece of bread and he broke that. And this bread represents the body. Look at verse 19. This is my body. Now, by the way, the bread that we partake of doesn't literally become the body of Jesus. Typically, representatively, this is the body of Jesus. But we're not Catholics. We don't believe that a priest can do something called a transmutation and change that piece of bread literally into the body of the Lord Jesus. We believe it is a symbol, a representative of the body of Jesus. And the Bible said he took that piece of bread and he broke it. He said, okay, this is my body. Now stop and think about that. I mean God in a bod. I mean, think about that. Now, we know in the Old Testament, God dwelt in a building. We know that. In the tabernacle, God lived in that building. Later on, Solomon built a more permanent structure, and God dwelt in a building. But what we're about to do in about a month from now, we're going to celebrate God no longer dwelling in a building. But aren't you glad he now dwells in a body? He took upon himself the form of a, of a human flesh, and he dwelt in in a body. And when Jesus broke that bread and gave it to those disciples, he is picturing what was about to happen to his body on Calvary. Now we know that not a bone of his body was broken while he was hanging on the cross. We know according to Old Testament prophecies that it was prophesied that not his bones would be broken, but his body was broken. Look at this verse, Psalms chapter 30. Uh, chapter 34, y'all help me, guys. There you go, verse number 20. The Bible said he keepeth all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. So when Jesus was hanging on that cross and all the beating and the battering that he endured before he ever got to the cross, not a bone of his body was broken. But can I tell you something? His body was mutilated. His body was beaten. I'm telling you, his body was bloodied and battered. His body was smacked and stabbed and stricken and smitten and spat upon. His body was treated. In fact, I think Jesus hanging there on the cross of Calvary, when you piece together what all the Old Testament prophets had to say about Calvary, Calvary is not a place of beauty. Calvary is a place of horror. It's it's a place of terror. I think Jesus hanging there on that cross didn't even resemble a man hanging there because Isaiah said his visage was marred more than any man. His back was laid open until his entrails were exposed. I'm telling you, his body was broken on that cross. Yes, sir. God gave his life. The body, the bread represents his body. But look at verse 20. The juice, the cup, represents his blood. Now look at verse 20. Likewise, also the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, as we partake of this communion service in just a moment, as we eat the bread, we are saying, Yes, his body was broken for me. But as we drank the juice, we're saying this, yes, his blood was shed for me. Just as those innocent lambs, those spotless lambs, blood was shed during the Passover so that the judgment of God would pass over. So the innocent lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, his blood was shed so that once and for all you and I could be sheltered from the coming judgment of God. 
Boy, aren't you glad? I'm glad the Bible said there is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that because of the blood of Jesus, we don't have to fear the judgment of God? Listen to my next statement. This is so important to listen to this. Either God will remove your sin from you or your sin will remove you from God. Can I say that one more time? Either God will remove your sin from you. How does He do that? Through the blood of His own Son. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all. See, by the way, not 99.5%. My mama, when we was growing up, she always bought ivory soap. We didn't have them squeegee things that people use now, like, you know, like a, what do you call them things? Foo-foo things. I'm not against that. I'm not saying I'm more spiritual, but I still use a cake of, a cake of soap and a wash rag to take a bath. I just can't never get, I can't get used to one of them foo-foo things. I wasn't I wouldn't brought up like that. I was brought up with a wash rag and a cake of soap. Amen. I don't, I, don't, I don't squirt my soap out of a bottle. I get it out of a box, man. It, it's so hard it eats the hide off of me. But I like that, don't y'all? How many of y'all, how many of you men use them foo-foo things? Oh, you wouldn't raise your hand if you did. We'd call you out as a liberal right here tonight. Mama used that ivory soap that cake of soap, and on the outside of the box, it would say something like 99.5% pure. But can I tell you something? The blood of Jesus Christ don't just wash away 99.5% of our sins because that 0.5 would condemn us to hell forever. Thank God the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. So this meal that we're about to partake of here in just a moment it kind of it gives us a picture of the love that God reveals. It gives us a picture of the life uh, that Jesus gave for us. But then number three, this meal speaks of the liberty that man receives. You see, there's a statement here. If you'll look at verse number 19, there's a statement in verse 19 and a statement in verse number 20 that really clues us in on why all this happened. And, I, and I've got them in my Bible. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. It says, this is my body which is given. And then why don't you circle these next two words? For you. Then drop down to verse number 20. And it says this, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed. Then there it is again. You know why all that happened? For you. You know why God sent His Son into the world and why His Son came into the world. You know why God allowed His Son to go through what He went through. By the way, you know why God punished His own Son while He was hanging on Calvary? For you and for me. It's all about us. Everything that Jesus did while He was here in this world, it was all for you. It was all for me. And what the Lord is saying in verse 19 and verse number 20 is, I've done this for you, but it does you no good unless you partake of it. It does you no, I have done this for you, but it does you no good 
unless you receive it. Now I want to say to anybody that may be here tonight that's lost, God, let me say it like this, God universally is the Savior of all men. I mean universally. There is no other Savior. He is the only Savior. I mean there's not another. He is the only name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved, Acts 4.12. There's no other way into heaven except through Jesus. Jesus is, is universally the Savior of all men. But now listen to me. Jesus is personally the Savior of every person who receives it. Potentially, Jesus could save everybody. But personally, He saves only those who receive Him. Am I right? I think what the Lord is saying in verse 19 and verse number 20 is, I'm, I'm making this available. Here's, my, here's the bread which represents my body. My body's about to be broken on Calvary. Here's the juice that represents the blood that I'm about to shed for you. But if you don't receive it, and by the way, I'm not talking about in some communion service. I'm talking by faith, opening your heart and receive the payment that's been made for you. Friend, salvation is not in a wafer. It's not in the water. It's not in the works. Brother, it's in the finished work of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. And that's the only way you can be saved. And Jesus said, I'm making it available but you've got to receive it. I'm paying the price, but you must appropriate the price that has been paid. So this whole meal, this Thanksgiving meal that we're about to partake of is nothing more than a reminder to cause us to stop. There's a lot going on this week. I know you ladies, bless your heart, I know y'all are already thinking about everything you've got to cook, pies making, and this person's coming, we've got to go there, this crowd's coming over here, we got there. I understand all that, but don't you think we ought to sit all that down for just a little bit? And just for a little while, thank God for the great salvation that He's provided for us. Let's bow our heads for prayer.